Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Yes, okay, everybody. Thanks all for coming today. I'm chairing Steve's bar. I've been told I don't need to introduce Sarah. I can't do any more. But she's obviously with us. Associate Professor, Housley Future Fellow, all around good thing. Publishing lots of things, getting too much money, uh, and just doing wonderful things, specifically being GAI and GIR and Griffith and all the rest of it. And Sarah's been talking about politics, accounting, reporting, sexual and gender-based violence in Myanmar. There you go. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'm going to first start off with some terms, and then I'm going to move towards the project, and then I'm going to move towards the case and what we're talking about here. So, for the purposes of the project, we have adopted the definition provided under the 1998 Rome Statute, and in particular we've referred to the 2014 Office of the ICC Prosecutor's Report on Sexual and Gender-Based Violence, which details the elements of crimes, the the types of different acts that could constitute sexual and gender-based crimes, and the different avenues in which these crimes may be documented. And so that report details sexual and gender-based crimes as as including crimes that can constitute, of course, physical acts such as rape, forced um, forced nudity, forced and times forced abortions. It can also, they refer to acts that constitute gender-based violence. And here they refer to acts that are known to be violations against genders that are deemed to have significant impact, shame, stigma attached to individuals in these societies. And so the importance we believe very strongly of referring to this definition continually is that the emphasis in that definition is on sexual crimes, so acts of, of, you know, of penetration, acts of physical violation, but they're also those crimes that are attempting to identify your gender and your gender identity and attaching shame and stigma to that. And so we obviously incorporate women and men, girls and boys, and we also are very sensitive to the concern about or the need to include things such as forced abductions, trafficking, uh, forced marriage, which are technically not included at this point under these elements, but they are ones that are being increasingly discussed about as being included and should be considered and taken into account. These are the definitions that are used and referred to under numerous United Nations Security Council resolutions, even though we know a number of the permanent five member states aren't signatories to the ICC. These definitions are the ones that are referred to in the Human Rights Council and the reports that they provide on country-specific situations, on commissions of investigations. And so we feel very comfortable in using these terms. The reason why I feel it's necessary to always start off this discussion saying this is because we're not only talking, or we're not specifically talking about rape. We have a much broader elements of here that we're looking for and we're coding when I get to that point. The other thing that we think is quite important to acknowledge is the definition of widespread and systematic, which of course is the key term that is also referred to in the ICC, as well as the Human Rights Council, as well as Security Council resolutions when talking about sexual and gender-based violence. And widespread and systematic, of course, depends on two things that we identify, uh, or that we're trying to understand, actually, in the project. Obviously, it depends to a large extent on reporting and verification, so that's one of the things that we're very sensitive to and trying to understand how this is understood and how widespread and systematic is something then be attached to reporting and incidences. 
So if you have a number of reports coming in, does that mean it's widespread? Does that mean that perhaps there's just better access to communications? These are the things that we're trying to understand and deal with. Does time lags and these sorts of things matter in terms of how we identify what widespread systematic is? But we're also, again, referred to the 2014 ICC report, which also talks about these widespread and systematic can be particularly identified or known or seen to be occurring in situations where there is endemic gender oppression and a culture of impunity for SGBV. So it's not just about the situations where you may have a high count of rape or you might have a high count of sexual torture that is being committed. It's also in situations where there is this culture of impunity and therefore when groups or actors or non-state combatants or states carry out these crimes, there is nothing done uh, or there is very little form of prosecution that's developed to address the impunity of these crimes. And so this has led to a lot of discussions about to what extent when we're trying to understand and map SGBV, particularly in those situations where there are silences, where there is a lot of shame and stigma attached to these crimes, can we actually identify the extent to which they're occurring? Widespread and systematic at that point becomes very problematic and it even can become problematic in situations where gender oppression is already widespread because we're dealing with a situation then where you're trying to this is one thing that Elizabeth Waters and others have referred to, which is when it's everywhere, how do you identify the situations where it's beyond, it constitutes this what international community identifies as, as a crime of international concern. And that's something that we're trying to engage with in, in this project. At the moment, we identify there being three narratives around sexual and gender-based violence that's informed by these terms and these definitions and the 10 or so more years of reporting on sexual and gender-based violence in the United Nations Security Council and Human Rights Council to date. The first one is the representation of sexual and gender-based violence when it occurs as, as an epidemic, that it's these acts of savagery, there are irrational acts, there are acts that occur in lawless lands, and there are acts that can be, if you like, quelled or addressed by developing no-rate pledges, by enforcing the rule of law, and that there is actually quite a rational response that you can develop in response to these crimes, because they're irrational acts. There's been a counter-argument to that, and that's been particularly used with the Democratic Republic of Congo, but also to some extent with Liberia and a number of other cases. There's been other research that's been done that's actually demonstrated that in these instances there's actually quite a rational pursuit of this type of violence in a number of the situations where it occurs. These are not acts of savagery where people are engaging in these crimes because they are aware or they're not they're thinking I can get away with it, there's not going to be any family or patriarchal system or any type of retribution for what I do. In fact, Maria Stern and Baz have argued crime strongly through their interviews with perpetrators, particularly in Democratic Republic of Congo, that they're actually quite rational arguments that, that perpetrators put forward for as to why they do it, and strategic thinking into how they go about it, and even into how they assume that they're going to be able to get away with it. The second narrative we have, which is that, while on the one hand we have these epidemics, these epidemics of SGBVs, when we compare and contrast other situations, they should be termed as non-event. And that has been particularly attached to uh, the Philippines, for example, that this is an event where you've had long sustained conflict, but a non-event of SGBV. 
and that a similar argument has been made at times on and off in Colombia, and as well as um, actually interesting studies have been done in Northern Ireland as well. Again, what has been argued here, or what has been trying to be understood and addressed, is that what we're dealing with here is issues around coding and access to populations. So this dependence on widespread and systematic SGBV through the United Nations Security Council is tended to then focus on only those situations that are under discussion on the Security Council. And so if they're identified as a conflict situation, they'll be designated at SGBV. If they're not being discussed or referred to on the Security Council, they're not necessarily going to get that discussion and designation as SGBV. And this is problematic when we're thinking about international engagement, any type of advocacy that's occurring within these countries, because if they don't receive, if you like, the status that's being attached to SGBV, it can be very hard for actors within to mobilise and to have these situations where it may be occurring, perhaps even in very small numbers, but it still may be widespread and systematic for those populations that are being targeted. The third area that we are concerned with and we're really interested in is the over-visibility of particular populations. So the other thing that we're seeing, we would argue, occurring with SGBV is that you're seeing particular narratives evolving around particular conflicts where usually it is being identified that there's just one armed group perpetrating the majority of the sexual and gender-based violence against one population. What we're interested with that is the way in which the direction of particular research is going, which is that there's an acceptance of that narrative, that in conflicts, or in particularly in civil conflicts, you will have one group engaging in it far more than the other groups, and that therefore the idea around the response and the engagement and the international, if you like, punishment, for want of a better word, of that one group is all that's needed to address the occurrence of the crime in that country. We're not entirely sure that that narrative, and this is one that we saw particularly evolved with the Sri Lankan conflict that we we're also doing in our project, where there was a lot of discussion about that the Tamils are never, ever engaged in the use of sexual violence. And there's been a lot of studies and a lot of um, assumptions and recommendations being made on SGBV from that identification of the Tamils as being a group that did not commit sexual and gender-based violence. One of the things that we're arguing in that case, and we're keen to look at as far in the Myanmar case, is that you then have forced abductions forced recruitment of underage children, in some cases very early marriage, seems to then not be included or discussed in these cases. And we're interested in why that's happening, and we're concerned with perhaps the problematic interpretations of SGBV that's being used here, the limits in terms of when it's applied, when it's understood, and what cases are deemed to meet that criteria. So our project is an attempt to try and understand these narratives and talk back to them and try and see if we can perhaps extend them a little bit more, because we obviously feel that it's really important uh, to be able to, to ascertain or to understand the reporting pattern of SGBV. We think it's particularly important because of Palermo and what others have talked about, which is SGBV reporting is the tip of the iceberg. And in the recent Secretary-General's report on sexual violence and armed conflict, they refer to numerous where they say that they're assuming that in their reports of 19-odd situations over the last five years, they've done over 30 situations. They think they're probably reporting only about 5 to 10% of the total volume of what's happening. So for us, it's really important to understand when does reporting happen, what allows reporting to happen, <coughs> and what situations do not allow it to happen. And how can we understand patterns of this violence 
given that we don't think the reporting is really telling us the broad picture here. The other thing that we really want to try and understand a little bit deeper is the relationship between the crime that is committed, the types of SGBV crimes that are committed. That's why we argue we're doing something a little bit different here. We've got this very broad definition of SGBV under the ICC Rome Statute, and we're trying to understand the relationship of the crimes with who commits them, who's targeted for them, where these occur in country, what stage are these crimes of SGBV occurring at the points of political violence that may be escalating or de-escalating in these countries, and its relationship, of course, to the conflict. And we identify here conflict as being the one, the measure under the Uppsala Conflict Data Program, and we acknowledge that that in itself could deserve a whole other seminar. And the third thing that we're trying to understand, which we think is quite important, is that a lot of those narratives around sexual and gender-based violence with, as I said, some exceptions like, for example, a couple of the papers on Philippines and Sri Lanka, have primarily sought to understand and discuss patterns of SGBV by focusing on cases in sub-Saharan Africa. And there's a few that are starting to emerge, particularly focused in uh, former conflicts in Latin America and some in the Middle East. We feel that this is, it's really important to focus on the Asia-Pacific for two reasons. The first one is it has occurred here, and there are, even if people don't necessarily like the fact that we may be, for example, identifying the Philippines as a valid case that needs SGBV investigation despite it never appearing on any um, United Nations Security Council report, we feel what's really important is to have that discussion about why it hasn't and to address what could be done to further understand why that hasn't happened. The other thing that we think is really important to address in the Asia-Pacific region is this idea that it has to reach particular thresholds. It has to meet that epidemic, if you like, threshold that is talked a lot about, particularly in the cases of Liberia, Sierra Leone and DRC. And again, we feel that this is a problematic understanding of what widespread and systematic was meant to be understood uh, or was meant to be applied in cases where SGBV was occurring. We feel that there's been too much focus on scale rather than actually focusing on who is being targeted and why they're being targeted. So these are the things that we're trying to address in this project. And we're looking at these reporting patterns, the relationships between the patterns of reporting and who is targeted, and then how do we understand and compare these cases in this region. So the Myanmar case is the one that we're looking at or that I'm going to be presenting today. Um, we're also doing the Philippines and Sri Lanka. And it's a mixed method approach that we're adopting in relation to all three cases where we're looking at reporting counts and incidences of reporting and trying to code these reports over from 1998 to 2016. And then we're also doing uh, field work to these countries and we're primarily interviewing people in this country who are responsible for reporting. We have not ever interviewed individuals who have been subject to SGBV and we or not to our knowledge and we certainly don't ask people about their personal experience of SGBV. We don't have ethical clearance to do this and we also feel very strongly we don't have the expertise to be able to handle or respond to the trauma that we may uh, unintentionally create for victims of this violence. So we have very deliberately sought out and talked to organisations both local, national level and international level as well as non-government and government human rights institutions and uh, political groups to discuss with them 
how and when, and these ones that we have identified through our, through our coding who have done lots of reports on SGBV, and then we've also sought ones who haven't, and we've sought to ask them to account for their reporting, how they've reported, why they've reported, what they've reported. And I'm happy to take more questions about that. I'll move on now to the significance of the Myanmar case. For us, the significance of the Myanmar case, there's just so many reasons why this, for us, is a fascinating case and a very important one given the time that Myanmar is in at the moment. Obviously, a lot of you who are far more knowledgeable about this country than myself know that the Panglong Conference is happening at the moment, and this is in the wake of the November 2015 elections, the attempt to develop a national comprehensive ceasefire agreement. This is a country that is, if you like, of the three that we're studying, even though Sri Lanka has had a change of government and they're currently going through discussions about their reconciliation process. In Myanmar, there is a lot happening here. There is a lot changing. Our volume of reports alone on this country are just escalating every month. We try and code them. So for us, there's the political significance of this country and what's going on in terms of trying to develop some understanding of this last 15 to 20 years of this particular crimes that have happened here and inject some attempt to understand it for the current process. But for us, there's also a lot that is occurring in terms of the way in which there is being pushing for gender inclusion and addressing patterns of gender discrimination across the country that we think is quite interesting and quite important in terms of how this discussion around SGBV and who should be held accountable for these crimes is also taking place in this country at present. One of the things that we feel is quite important to address in the, in the countries that we're looking at is the significance of gender discrimination. And the, one of the reasons why we advocate for this very strongly is because amongst those narratives that I was talking about on sexual and gender-based violence, there is an increasing discussion about gender inequality or gender discrimination as not, as not being able to assist us in any way when we're trying to think about SGBV occurrence and the reasons and patterns for SGBV. This is largely based on the argument that gender inequality and gender discrimination is going to be pervasive in most of the cases that you're looking at, and therefore trying to understand some pattern from gender discrimination is not necessarily going to get you anywhere when you're trying to think about responses to SGBV. This is something that we obviously seek to challenge, uh, and I say obviously because for us, the significance of sexual and gender-based violence is gender-based. So there are particular understandings and patterns about what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a man, the power of relationships between these sexes, the way in which um, you identify particular acts of violence against particular sexes and the effect that that has on the political agency of those individuals to us is important to at least acknowledge and address. And so one of the things that we've sought to do here is to understand in Myanmar, but also Sri Lanka and the Philippines, is understand the patterns of gender discrimination in these countries and see if we can identify anything that might indicate to us particular areas of gender discrimination that perhaps need consideration and exploration when trying to link it or understand how they may inform SGBV crimes. So in, first of all, I'll start by saying that in the Myanmar case, we have and ongoing reports, particularly from, this, from the UN Special Rapporteur, of the occurrence of human rights violations, including sexual and gender-based violence from the 2000s, uh, that reports appeared actually from the 1990s. But you've had these annual reports ongoing discussing about the everyday occurrence 
of human rights violations that are occurring against particular ethnic groups by, in particular, the Tatmadaws of the Myanmar military forces in their incursions into civilian areas, uh, violation of laws of war, and in particular the torture, the arrest, and the acts of sexual violence that occur against populations who are arrested or those who are attacked on site in villages. There's also discussions about the, the prevalence of sexual and gender-based violence that may be occurring in non-controlled areas, particularly in displacement camps, but we find those reports are very minimal and very small compared to the overall discussion in this case about the Tatmadaws being primarily the actors who are engaging in a sexual and gender-based violence with complete utter failure, uh, if you like, that has been discussed by the current Special Rapporteur on Myanmar to address the accountability of the military for these crimes. And in the recent report that was done on sexual violence and conflict in the Myanmar case, they referred to the fact that the estimates are, since the United Nations have had a permanent field presence since 2012 in some of the areas where they believe that the sexual and gender-based violence is quite high, only 4% of survivors are still seeking to access any type of assistance for the violence that they have suffered. So there's still a gross underreporting of the extent of what is occurring here. When we were looking at the Myanmar case, what we were trying to understand then is the relationship between, first of all, what is the status of gender. So coming back to that sexual and gender-based violence definition, we wanted to understand what is the status of gender in the society and why would sexual and gender-based violence be deployed, if you like, as a rational act or, or a weapon to disengage or to disenfranchise particular populations from being able to participate in the political process or to deny them resources and access to land and location. And I'm happy to discuss further how we identify or why we, we identify sexual and gender-based violence as being attributed to rational acts of political violence. In this case, what we found is that the Myanmar case has high patterns of gender discrimination. It's not the highest. The very high is a category under the OECD SIGI. SIGI runs from very low to low to average to high to very high. The reason why we're interested in the SIGI is because it's quite a comprehensive data set. So to date, a lot of the studies of gender discrimination and its relationship to SGBV have tended to focus maybe on one or two very narrow indicators of gender inequality. For us, the SIGI is quite unique because of these five sub-indices that they're trying to understand to inform how gender uh, discrimination is taking place and is lived by populations within these countries. And what we think is particularly significant in the Myanmar case is the relationship between restricted civil liberties. So, acts of, so, so in this country, there is a very high tendency for women in particular to be excluded from participating in the civil process, from engaging in the political process. And we also think what's quite significant about this SIGI indication also is the strong attachment of gender to access to land and access to rights to work and access to resources. And we're particularly interested in looking at then when we go to look at the reporting is the relationship between the attacks to do with political engagement, political participation, the types of the relationship of the conflict and the patterns of the conflict and also access to, to land and access to economic resources and the position we think that's particularly important with this one as well is RDPs. So, in the case, I'm going to first talk about the data coding that we did for our database, and then I'm also then going to talk about the field work that we did. So, we were looking for about 12 
uh, variables that we coded for, then we were looking at reports on sexual and gender-based violence in Myanmar from 1998 to 2015. It is English only and we apologise for that. The only thing that we did do is we did run a couple of different attempts to try and see if we could get different languages. We found that a number of the reports that we were looking for were translated into English. We started to reach the point where, particularly because we're comparing it across the Philippines to Sri Lanka, we unfortunately had to make the decision to go with English-only reports. There is one database that we use for all of them which does provide a translator, so we were able to get access to some local language papers for all three cases but not as many as what we hoped. From 1998 to 2015, we were looking at a couple of thousand uh, reports that we found on Myanmar, and we looked for reports that were authored by the media, reports that were authored by the government, and reports that were authored by non-state actors. So these may be United Nations and other international organisations. And so we identified them as media, obviously media sources, official, which is government, and unofficial, which Again, a lot of people object to us using it unofficial for the United Nations reports, but it was just a way in which to get some sort of clarity as to who we were talking about when we were talking about them. One of the things that, so from those couple of thousand, we were able to distill to about 394 reports. We're up to 2016 now in the current coding, and we're looking at well over 400 reports now, 450 reports. 108 of these were UN or state authored, primarily most of them were UN authored that we were looking at there. A number of them, the highest majority by far were this non-government group of 162 and then media reports were 106. Media reports were actually starting to rise though of interest in the last year, couple of years. We also had what would be expected, which is peak in reporting, not peaks in counts, it's important to acknowledge we have counts as separate, so the counts of who was raped was the highest as in 2007, but the peaks in reporting started to reach 2012, and so we started to argue at this point that you start to see an association, if you like, between the rise in reporting with the occurrence of violence that is starting to be targeted against particular groups. The majority of the reports by far focus on rape. Very, very few reports only focus on gender violence, and again, we go back to those definitions I provided on what we defined as gender-based violence. The sites of violence that were reported were primarily violence that occurs in the village. As then from there, there's a dramatic drop down to military, to home, and what we think was particularly noteworthy over that period of time, given the volume of populations in refugee camps, was we really were only looking at about 10 sustained reports on refugee camps over that period of time where it was identified where SGBV is occurring. And we found that in non-state armed group territory, there were zero reports. Overwhelmingly, state forces were identified as the perpetrators committing these crimes. And interesting to us, the majority of the reports were being reported within one year, and most of the victims being recorded of these crimes are women. Ethnicity is overwhelmingly associated with the reasons for why victims were targeted. Again, that's quite an important thing, we argue, given that there's been a lot of discussion about ethnicity not being a reason why populations are targeted for SGBV. And we also, what we did find, which was interesting, is that abduction and trafficking is discussed in the context of non-state armed groups, but it still remains quite small compared to states. So there's still this disassociation of non-state armed groups from committing any acts of violence against these populations, sexual violence. When we took this report out to, to the field, so we wanted to then 
we sort of had the reports and then we wanted to go and ask, in essence, the actors on the ground in terms of what's their process for reporting, how do they decide to do the reporting and who do they report on. What we found was really interesting is, is that the process of reporting itself is incredibly contested and it's contentious. So the extent to which we can rely on those reports, those 394 reports that I just referred to, it's not very strong. It's not strong in the sense that what we found was that there was a lot of discussion, particularly amongst the non-government organisations, but also the United Nations, that a lot of the time they are often making the decision not to report the cases of sexual violence that they are encountering, or they decide to designate reports to particular actors, say that, for example, a number of United Nations organisations or agencies who are present on the ground say that they prefer to refer their reports up to the Special Rapporteur on Human Rights or to the UN Secretary General Special Representative on Sexual and Gender-Based Violence because they know that those reports will be distilled into sort of more generic discussion of the types of violence that is occurring rather than referring to specific acts and specific numbers and volumes. And they say the reason why they're doing that is because there is the sense that they need to protect the populations that they're working in, and there's also a desire to protect their own work that they're doing in terms of the access to the populations that they are attempting to gain access to. There was also what was interesting for us was the degree of caution about reporting non-state armed groups as perpetrators of sexual and gender-based <coughs> violence. And this was, again, something that we found in discussions with not just United Nations and international non-government organisations, but some of the groups, the political arms of the groups that we met with themselves, where some of the women's organisations attached to some of these non-state armed groups, and I'm talking in generic terms here, and I'm very happy to talk with people individually about the people or the way and who we talk to and how we talk to them about this. But there was a lot of discussion about the knowledge or concern about the possibility that sexual violence may be being committed, particularly in non-government controlled areas. It may be quite prevalent, particularly forms of gender-based violence is quite prevalent in displacement camps. But the degree to which they want to be forthcoming about the level of violence that is occurring due to the consequences that it might have on the political process that they're attempting to engage with the government, there is a sense that in a way that reporting this is not going to necessarily do any favours to their community or even to the women who are being subjected to this violence. The other thing that we thought was very interesting was this contradiction, if you like, or for us trying to understand the political agency of reporting against the state, this overwhelmingly high number of reports that were being documented against the state versus the relatively low number of reports that the state itself are engaging with. Part of that can be answered by the fact that this is an indication of the lack of seriousness that the state is taken consistently to the seriousness of these crimes. So the lack of official investigations into these crimes is evidence here of impunity, of widespread and systematic impunity. However, what we also found was interesting is that all of the groups had reported lots of difficulty in gaining access to particular populations. And so again, you have high volumes of reports that tend to be focused on the same actors or the same perpetrators or the same situations where violence is occurring, and we're not getting a lot more broadening or understanding of the violence that are occurring in the areas where, when you interview people, they consistently say they suspect sites of violence, for example in IDP camps, is very high, but there's an inability to access the zones. 
The other thing that we think that this indicates to us particularly, and this is something that we think is going to come out quite strongly we're looking at at the moment in comparisons of other cases, is this failure of the government to reform the penal code on sexual violence, the parliament process, the reluctance to adopt the violence against women legislation, and also the lack of inclusion of SGBV in the peace process to us again as an indication here of the extent to which SGBV and failure to acknowledge or denying it is definitely being attached, if you like, or being deliberately ignored and part of this political reform process. And for us, that's quite important, the fact that the Violence Against Women legislation now is into its second year of not yet being adopted. There is continued arguments for more discussion and inclusion of SGBV into the peace process, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of attachment or a lot of energy being attached to that within the groups who are having this dialogue. To us, it's an indication here that there is still an inability to get the volume of these crimes being taken seriously, and our concern is this is, this is being attached to the fact that the reports are still not quite uh, reporting or documenting the full extent of these crimes. I'll be honest, at this point we're still trying to make sense of this, but to us this is quite, quite important to note that this is happening. There's a gap here potentially between the volume of the crimes that are occurring and the degree to which they're being taken seriously. So what does this mean then in terms of where we are at at the moment at, the, at this project? For us what's really important is to acknowledge that when we're thinking about SGBV and we're trying to understand these, these, these macro patterns, if you like, Reporting silences are, are always there, and a lot of people talk about silences in SGBV, but for us, when we're looking at it as international community engaging with these events or engaging with these crimes, it's really important to acknowledge that uh, there are particular groups who are well mobilised to be able to tell these stories. It's part of their political agency to be able to get out the story of SGBV, but it can lead to the inability to then hear the other groups who may also be vulnerable or if not more vulnerable to these crimes. And so how do we understand and empower those who cannot report, both the people who want to report and the people who are being subjected to these crimes, what engagement can be done to assist them in a way that can be safe and that can actually address the, you know, the volume that they're witnessing. The other thing that we are concerned about is the reporting biases. The, the situation regarding the penal code, the status of gender in Myanmar affects a lot the extent to which we're able to get reliable reports, particularly on gender-based violence. We think that one of the reasons why that count is quite low, the lowest compared to the other countries, is because there is not yet really a, a definition of gender-based violence that we have that is understood and being consistently used in, in that country. And there's a similar issue as well in relation to the sexual violence definition under the penal code. So there's this room, there's this space still to contest what is sexual and gender-based violence in this country that we feel is affecting in particular to the reports that we're receiving. And then the other thing that we think is quite important to acknowledge is, is, the, is this power play that's occurring, the way in which SGBV is understood to, uh, particularly in situations where the, the purity of women and girls, the racial purity of women and girls in particular, and the idea of representing them as being raped agitates you know, agitates the population, it agitates the international community to engage and to, to represent those populations on their behalf. It may, can actually advance particular political agendas, but it may not necessarily address or deepen our understanding of the full extent of violence that may be occurring within that community or how to assist 
dealing with the impunity. So I actually end, as all, I think, the worst thing with conclusions. I've ended my conclusion with more questions. Um, but for me, this is where we're at currently in the project, and this is where we're at the point now where we're going to do more field work in the three cases that we're looking at. But one of the things that we're trying to understand at this point is the so what. So we've looked at a bunch of reports, and we've gone and done field work, and we've found that there's not a lot of talking between the two of them. What we're trying to understand now is what does this mean? When we're talking about the importance of early warning and prevention in particular, what prevention tools, what sort of guidelines can be provided, or what understanding can we have to try and then guide what's good reporting practice or what facilitates reporting practice, and we're starting from the point that we think reporting is important. Then the other problem that we have with that is then how do we ensure that stories of violence can be told and told in a way that's safe? And then also, if we're having to stay in a situation where we may not be able to address the bias, we may not be able to address the systems where these terms are not recognised, are there other engagements or other suggestions that we can provide to try and assist the reporting system. And so in the case of Myanmar, one of the things that we're talking about a lot at the moment is, you know, is the importance of pushing through, for example, a consistency at least in the terms of the violence that must be reported, updating the legislation in this area, activating around inclusion of SGBV, more SGBV inclusion in the peace process at this point. So thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.